scripture reading this morning will come from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest ye die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Two brothers were discussing the story of Adam and Eve one day, and the oldest asked the youngest, how did Adam and Eve die? And the youngest responded, well, they ate bad fruit. And, and that is a pretty simplistic view of the story, but there is some truth to what he's saying. They ate bad fruit in the sense that they chose to eat the wrong fruit. This morning, as we continue our study through the, book of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 3. And our theme for this series has been called Beginnings. Because in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have the, the beginnings of so many, the origins of so many aspects of our belief system, of our theology. A couple of weeks ago, we spent time in Genesis chapter 1, and we were examining the one week of creation and how that one week had bearing on our understanding of God's identity as well as our own. Last week, we spent our time in Genesis chapter 2, and we focused on that one flesh institution that God created that we call marriage, and what the uh, creation account had to say about that institution. And today we turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we focus on the story of the fall as we examine one sin, but not just any sin, the very first sin. And this morning we're going to spend some time talking about that one sin and how it helps us understand what sin is, why we do it, and how it affects us. We need to start with some definitions, though. We need to start by acknowledging what sin is. The Greek word that's translated sin, you've likely heard before, is a word that means to miss the mark. It literally means to miss the mark. It is an archery term. It's a reference to a moment when an arrow is shot at a target, but it doesn't hit the bullseye. Anytime an arrow fails to penetrate the bullseye, it is a sin. It has missed the mark. And so any imperfection, any failure to do exactly what God has called you to do, that categorically falls under this concept of sin. And do you realize there are two ways this happens? Sin occurs when we do what God has forbidden. We often can refer to this as the sin of commission. When we do what God has told us not 
to do, we sin. This is the sin described in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, where John said, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Here John draws a comparison between sin and breaking the law. And then if you go just a couple of chapters beyond this to 1 John chapter 5 and you arrive at the 17th verse, John will say that all wrongdoing is sin. So, so John, in this first letter he writes, describes sin as doing what you're instructed not to do, either breaking the law or wrongdoing, whichever definition you want to work with. All of them categorically refer to doing something we're not supposed to do and therefore define sin for us. This happened in the Garden of Eden. If you journey back to Genesis chapter 2 and you look at verse 16 and 17, God told Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So when Eve took of that tree's fruit and ate in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, she did something that God forbid. And when Adam accepted the fruit from his wife and he ate there also in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, he too did something that God forbid. So both of them sinned. Both of them were guilty of the sin of commission. And we are not unlike Adam and Eve. There are many times that you and I find ourselves led into a temptation, lured into sin because we're choosing to do something that God has explicitly instructed us not to do. This may be the sin category we are the most familiar with, or at least the one we talk about the most. But there is another way in which we sin. Sin also occurs when we fail to do what God has instructed us to do. This is called the sin of omission. In other words, when we fail to do what God has told us to do, we sin. This, this is the sin described in James chapter 4 and verse 17, where it says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You cannot get a more clear definition of sin than what you get right there in James chapter 4 verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There is a a hint of this type of sin in the Garden of Eden as well. As I mentioned last week in our study of marriage, Adam and Eve were created to spiritually support one another. Eve is created to be Adam's helper, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And though not expressly mentioned, Adam was created to be the spiritual leader as evidenced by God's intentional communication with him. So when Eve took of the forbidden fruit, and ate, and then gave some to her husband, she failed to do what she was expected to do. She failed to be that spiritual helper for Adam. And when Adam failed to intervene while Eve was being te tempted, despite the fact that he was with her, he failed to do what he was expected to do as the spiritual leader of that family unit. So both Adam and Eve are guilty of the sin of omission, of failing to do what they're supposed to do, and we are not unlike them. For many of us, we fail because we choose not to fulfill God's expectations, instructions, commands. 
If I choose not to partake in the, the mission that's assigned to me in the Great Commission, then I'm ful- failing to fulfill God's instructions. If I'm refusing to gather with the body of Christ to worship Him on the first day of the week, based on the example provided for us in Scripture, based on His expectations of what His people do, then guess what? I'm failing to do something God instructed me to do. We need to understand that any time we fail to do what God has instructed us to do, we're committing a sin just as if we're doing something He told us not to do. Both categories are sin. That's the definition of sin. And when you look at the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve committed both types. You know, it's one thing for us to stand here today. Well, I'm standing, you're sitting. It's one thing for us to be here today and to talk about definitions. But definitions only take you so far. Don't we really need to talk about why we fail to do what we're supposed to do? Or why we manage to do what we're not supposed to do? Shouldn't we really consider why we sin? You know, some contend that when it comes to the first sin, we share in Adam's guilt. It's called the doctrine of original sin. And if you sin as something that, that we inherited, this teaching believes that we sin because we got it from Adam. Because he sinned for all of us, and we're guilty of his sin, so therefore we inherited it from the time we entered creation. Now, I, unfortunately, I don't have time to dive into the depths of that teaching and explain why it's erroneous today, but that day is coming. I intend at some point this year to tackle that subject, to address that false doctrine in much more length. But it's largely based on passages like in Romans chapter 5, where it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Suffice it to say today that the first sin was not something in which we participated. But I believe it is something that we may have emulated. What I mean by that is I'm not guilty of Adam's sin because that kind of uh, guilt doesn't pass between generations. I didn't cause Adam to sin. I didn't participate in Adam's sin. I didn't sin with Adam. But I have sinned like Adam. And the failures of Adam and Eve that are present in the Garden of Eden are present in our lives today. And what I mean by that is the, the, the weaknesses, the things that led up to them making the wrong choices in the Garden are the very same things that lead to our wrong choices too. We don't have time to present an exhaustive list, but I want to share three ways in which we fail that lead to our own sin in hopes that preventing these in the future might prevent us from sinning in the future. First off, notice that we sin because we fail to distance ourselves from temptation. Look again at what happens in the first four verses of Genesis chapter 3. Starting in the last half of the first verse, we read that the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the, in the garden, uh, of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What's wrong with this picture? The thing that's wrong with this picture is Eve is talking with a snake. Let me give you a good rule of thumb. If you find yourself talking to an animal and it's talking back to you, you can pretty much assume you're doing something wrong because there's only three instances in the Bible where an animal speaks and they're always followed by something bad. The first is here with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The second is a donkey talking to Balaam and that donkey's warning him that there's an angel up in front of him trying to take off his head. And the third is an eagle flying overhead during John's vision in the book of Revelation. And that eagle pronounces woe three times on the earth. And I'll tell you what follows. It's not good. So if you ever find yourself in conversation with an animal and it's talking back, just know that's not a good sign. But in this instance, really think about Eve. Eve made one drastic mistake. She tried to reason with the serpent. And if you look at that first verse of Genesis chapter 3, what's the one description we're given of the serpent? He's crafty. Now this doesn't mean he goes to Hobby Lobby and buys stuff and makes stuff all the time. Crafty means intelligent, sly, cunning, deceitful. And you can't reason with a being who is known as the father of lies. You can't outsmart someone who is capable of disguising himself as an angel of light. And that's why the most repeated, the most repeated, the most repeated strategy for fighting temptation in the New Testament is fleeing. Oftentimes we think, okay, the way we fight temptation is we stand our ground, we put on the armor of God, and we, we stand there and we, and we defend ourselves. The most repeated strategy for fighting temptation is to run away. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, we're told to flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14, we're told to flee from idolatry. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, we're told to flee youthful passions. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, we're told to flee these things, which includes uh, some, uh, the love of money, false doctrines, among other things listed prior to it. The most repeated command in all the New Testament when it comes to fighting temptation is to flee. Eve failed to do that. Eve failed to remove herself from the presence of temptation. Think about it. This whole ordeal could have been avoided if she had just gotten away from the serpent. If as soon as the serpent started talking with her, if she had just walked away. But let's be honest. Eve's not the only one who has ever failed to distance herself from temptation. We fail to do it all the time. Maybe there's an environment you need to distance yourself from because it entices you to engage in something that is sinful. Maybe there's a media outlet or a social media app or a source of entertainment you need to distance yourself from because it influences you to do something you shouldn't. Maybe there's a person you need to distance yourself from because he or she persuades you to do things that contradict God's will. And maybe the only way to escape those temptations is to flee. Don't, estimate the, don't underestimate 
the power of flight. It's not cowardice. It's not weakness. It's biblically prescribed. And it's one reason why we give in to sin. But there is another reason we sin. Sometimes we sin because we fail to know God's Word. I want you to do a comparison with me in the text of Genesis real quick. I want you to go back to chapter 2, to verse 16 and 17, and I want you to notice the instructions that God gave Adam regarding trees. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Those were the original instructions that God gave Adam in regards to the tree. Now, flip back over to those first three verses of Genesis chapter 3. And look at Eve's version of the command. The version she presented to the serpent in their conversation. It's particularly in verse 2 and 3. Where Eve said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. When Eve quoted God's instructions to the serpent, there were some minor changes. You may not have even picked up on them because they're so subtle. When Eve presented God's instructions, she presents it as a statement. God said, not God commanded. When Eve presented God's instructions to the serpent, she added the phrase, nor shall you touch it. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. Now, maybe that was Adam and Eve's stipulation, something that, some, some stipulation they placed on the tree as an added layer of protection. But God never said anything about touching it. And finally, when Eve presented God's instruction to the serpent, she presented death, the consequence of eating that fruit, as a potentiality, as something that may happen, rather than a guarantee. Here's the point. Eve's not repeating God's instruction exactly as God gave it. And you could argue, oh, well, she wasn't the one who received it. Adam was. Whether it was Adam's fault for communicating God's word clearly to Eve, or Eve's fault for misunderstanding or misquoting God's word doesn't really matter. What matters is you have an example here of someone misrepresenting God's word to some degree. And it leaves open this window for the serpent to crawl in and confuse the whole message. When you don't know God's word well, you leave open a foothold for the devil 
to create confusion and doubt as to what God actually said. And like Eve, we oftentimes find ourselves sinning because we are not knowledgeable of God's Word. We need to remember that when Jesus, the, the only person to walk this earth and never sin, the only person to never sin, when he faced temptation, how did he combat it? Just turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 4, look at verse 7, look at verse 10. And every time Jesus was tempted in that wilderness, he responded to the temptation by quoting God's word. You want another successful strategy for combating temptation and for preventing sin? Know God's word. It worked for Jesus. So it's got to be a pretty good strategy for you and I to employ as well. And one final reason we have a tendency to sin, not the only other reason, but another reason we sin is because we fail to keep God on the throne. Adam and Eve only had one rule. Do you realize that? They had one rule. One law. One restriction. Essentially one way to sin. And from our vantage point, it would be so easy to avoid sinning if we only had to keep up with one thing, right? If there was only one policy we had to observe, wouldn't it be so easy not to sin? Oh, you would think that would be the case. But I want you to think about what really enticed them to eat the forbidden fruit that day. Look at how it was presented to them by the serpent in verse 4 and 5 of Genesis chapter 3. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them, that God was keeping them from having something that would make them like him. The serpent, in effect, said, If you eat the fruit from that tree, then you can be your own God. He convinced them that God can be dethroned and they could be enthroned. And whenever we elevate someone or something to the position of God, what have we done? Think about that very first command for a moment. You shall have no other what before me? You shall have no other gods before me. And what were Adam and Eve convinced they could become? Their own God. You see, idolatry occurs whenever you make something in your life, whether it be your job or your health or your finances or your politics or an ideology or a material object or a person, a passion, a feeling, an experience. Whenever you make anything whenever you make anything in your life more important than God, you've created an idol out of it. You've given it a place on a throne that belongs solely to God. 
And think about this passage in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now that leads up to the, the um, conclusion that you cannot serve God money. It's in the midst of a discussion on finances, and sometimes that's where we leave it. But think about that phrase. You cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. What is Jesus essentially communicating here? He's communicating that God is a jealous God who refuses to share the spotlight with any other entity. And any time we choose to enthrone someone or something, what we're really doing is dethroning God because God refuses to share thrones. And God has warned us that when he's dethroned, we've sinned. And so another way we have a tendency to sin is by dethroning God. And while this would be a great place to wrap up this sermon with a wonderful application and some you know, inspirational story, there's one more thing we do need to acknowledge from Genesis chapter 3. We need to acknowledge that sin has consequences. When you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, it's all about consequences. Because sin always has consequences. Look at Genesis chapter 3, particularly verse 22 through 24. There we read this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the aftermath of that first sin, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and their expulsion from Eden meant that their ultimate consequence was separation from two things. One consequence was separation from the tree of life. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, we're told that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God created two trees, but God gave instructions to not eat from only one of those trees. He didn't give any instructions regarding the tree of life. He didn't say you can't eat of the tree of life. Apparently that tree was fair game the whole time Adam and Eve resided in the garden. But after they sinned, after they were expelled from Eden, God cut off their access to the tree of life. That's when God gave that initial instruction. God gave that initial instruction to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He knew that the consequence of that sin would be separation from the tree that prolonged life. And therefore, death would naturally follow. And that consequence was reiterated to Adam in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3, when God said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That dust to dust terminology was God's way of reminding Adam that physical death 
was a consequence of sin. That inability to access the tree of life was the metaphor for death. But because of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, we can have our sins forgiven. And we can be welcomed into heaven where according to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 2, the tree of life is present again. In other words, heaven will be a place where separation from that tree, which resulted in physical death, will never be experienced again. But to get there, you have to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, as Peter declared in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. See, physical death manifested through the separation from the tree of life, that's one consequence of sin. Another consequence of sin was separation from the presence of God. See, when they were kicked out of the garden, they didn't just lose their access to the tree of life. They lost a very intimate connection to the Lord. When they resided in Eden, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And they were in a place where they could be in the presence of the Lord God, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, if you read between the lines. In other words, in the garden, they experienced an unprecedented level of intimate interaction with God. You know, Enoch may have walked with God. Abraham may have hosted God. Jacob may have wrestled with God. And Moses may have seen God's back. But only Adam and Eve dwelled with God in a very unique way. And when they sinned and they were expelled from Eden, they were removed from the presence of God because sin separates us from Him. It's Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 that says it most plainly. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And that's why hell is routinely associated with being cast into the outer darkness, the place where sins are punished is commonly, commonly associated with darkness. You see, throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light, while his absence is consistently associated with darkness. And so the emphasis of that darkness metaphor is that hell is a place absent God, a place of complete separation from the author of life and the giver of all good gifts. And Paul summarized that consequence in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. After speaking about the kind of people that will be sent to hell, he referred to hell as a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But because of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, we can have our sins forgiven and we can be welcomed into heaven, which in Revelation chapter 21 is described as a place coming down from God in a place where God will dwell with man and they shall be his people. In other words, heaven will be a place where separation from God will never be experienced again. Where that intimate dwelling with God exists again. But to get there, 
you have to be, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, we turn to Genesis chapter 3 today to understand the origin of sin. To look at sin's beginning and consider how it manifests in our life as well. But we would be amiss not to tell you how to get rid of it. Because that's ultimately why we preach, why we teach, why we share the good news. Because all of us are sinners. And Jesus is our Savior, and He provides the only, the only way to have those sins removed. If you need to have your sins addressed today, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.